welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. On each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Jeremy Thorner, professor at the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology of the University of California, Berkeley, and associate editor of the Annual Review of Biochemistry. Professor Jeremy Thorner graduated from Harvard College in 1967 and obtained a PhD in biochemistry from Harvard University in 1972. He spent two years at the Stanford University School of Medicine before joining Berkeley, where he has been a professor ever since. As the head of the Thorner Lab, he made key discoveries, such as the enzyme that converts the alpha factor per hormone into its bioactive form in 1984. Since then, his groundbreaking research has allowed for a better understanding of cellular signal transduction mechanisms and cellular morphogenesis. Professor Thorner received the Merit Award from the National Institute of General Medical Sciences in both 1989 and 1998. That year, he became a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences and a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology. And in 2007, he became a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Hello and welcome to our show, Professor Thorner. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about your research. Would you describe some of the most important discoveries you've made and tell us why they matter? I guess the problem in science that fascinated me the most uh, and why I set my lab up to pursue that problem was why in biology the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts, how cells orchestrate and integrate their behavior one to another, which requires that the cells communicate. And maybe there was some underlying sociological aspect to that, that if I figured out how cells could communicate better, I could get people to communicate better. But so we've, we've studied two aspects of that problem. One is how do cells manufacture the signals that they use to communicate? And then, of course, how do they decode that information? How do they receive those signals? And so the findings we've made in those areas are the things of which I'm, I'm most proud. In particular, at the time we started our work, it wasn't known how all of the multifarious peptides that circulate in our bodies are generated from the cells that produce them. It was learned by, by pioneering work by Donald Steiner and uh, his co-workers, Howard, Howard Tager in particular at the University of Chicago, that uh, hormones that we're all familiar with, like insulin, for example, were made on bigger molecules, which meant that there had to be some kind of molecular scissors to clip those hormone sequences out of those larger molecules, which are referred to as precursors or pro-hormones. And so that meant there were enzymes called proteases, which chop proteins up and leave the bioactive part alone, but snip it out of its, its bigger suitcase that carries it around the cell before it's delivered outside the cell. And fortunately, uh, even though yeast cells are a unicellular microbe, those are the organisms we study, um, they have all the attributes of bigger more complex cells. They have nuclei with membranes around them and mitochondria, and they segregate their chromosomes by a mitotic spindle. So they're a rudimentary eukaryote, but even so, the actual fact of making secreted peptide signals and responding to them is an evolutionarily very ancient process because yeast has it too. So you don't have to study this in anything complicated like elephant brains. You can use yeast to attack the same questions, and that's what we did. And we found out by using both genetics and biochemistry 
that there's an enzyme in yeast that's responsible for processing the yeast hormone called alpha factor, very imaginably named. It's produced by the, you guessed it, alpha cells. But there's an enzyme that does that, and fortunately for us, it and all of its relatives have been conserved through eukaryotic evolution right up into human beings. And our lab, and Don Steiner's lab, and lots of other labs, Michel Chrétien's lab in Montreal, uh, use that information to determine the mammalian, in fact, human counterparts of that yeast enzyme. And of course, there are more of them in humans than there is in yeast. There's just one in yeast, etc. But, but uh, finding the yeast enzyme, which was called KEX2, was a real breakthrough in that field and uh, a real contribution to endocrinology. And on the flip side about how cells respond, one of the things that we're particularly interested in is has to do with a property or a phenomenon that you, everybody's encountered in their own life, and that is the property of adaptation. That even if you respond to a signal, you have to be able to return back to the initial condition so that you're ready to respond again. And uh, we've encountered this in our everyday life. Let's say you play hooky and go to a movie in the middle of the day and you come out of the theater where it's been dark and you walk into the sunshine, you're blinded because the intensity of the sun is activating the receptors in your eyes, the retinal rhodopsin, and you're blinded for a few seconds. But after a while, you can see perfectly normally at the ambient light. Well, the intensity of the sun hasn't changed. What's happened is the receptors have down-regulated the gain so that you're, you're not overshooting in your response. And the same thing is true of... Uh, giving medicine, you have to give stronger and stronger doses to elicit the same response because the cells adapt to a certain level. It's unfortunately what happens in drug addicts, uh, habituation, they have to take more and more to get the same degree of stimulation. So trying to understand the molecular basis of that process has a lot of clinical applications, not just fundamental applications. And so many of the signals that act in cells um, act through what are known as G-protein-coupled receptors. And as part of our work, we discovered a factor that's uh, now referred to as an RGS protein, regulator of G-protein signaling, that's responsible for shutting off the pathway that's turned on by these receptors. And again, this is universally conserved, and the first one was found in yeast, and another one was found, Eggle 10, in the laboratory of Bob Horvitz at MIT. It was found in worms called Eggle 10. It's sort of the equivalent thing. And uh, as I said, these are conserved all the way up through human beings, except there are many more such genes in human beings because there are many more such G-protein-coupled receptors. But it's, it's those two areas that I'm, I'm most proud about our contributions because the work in yeast really was pathfinding and groundbreaking and really the first place where these factors, proteins were found. And, so your, your research um, affected, like you just mentioned it quickly, endocrinology and genetics. Um, I was wanting to ask you about specific applications and, and ways that your research has been used in those, in those um, areas. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things I think a scientist always hopes in the back of their mind, especially if they're a basic scientist, is, is there any application for what you actually discovered? And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why when faculty members at universities get asked to participate in corporate enterprises, say at biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies, 
some of us sort of jump at the chance because uh, by serving as a consultant or an advisor, one has a way to sort of utilize the information you've gleaned so that it can be applied. And one of the exciting things uh, that happened to me was that my colleague, Edward Penhote, uh, and uh, a colleague of his is his old, I think, postdoc advisor, Bill Rudder from across the way at UCSF, founded a company that was at the time called Chiron Corporation. And one of their initial motivations was to use the advances that were made in yeast to produce bioactive products and uh, pharmaceutically useful things. And in fact, all of the information we learned about how the yeast makes its hormone was exploited to turn yeast into a little factory to make pre-pro-insulin, human pre-pro-insulin in yeast. And yeast has been used for millennia to brew beer and wine and bake bread, and so we know it's not toxic. And so it was a good system in which to try and produce a human product because even if there were a minuscule amount of contamination, it probably wouldn't be harmful to, to a person. And in fact, such a, with the help of myself and my colleague Randy Sheckman and Jasper Ryan and uh, our late colleague Seymour Fogel, uh, these procedures were developed uh, by Chiron and sold to a Danish company, Novo Nordisk. And I think they still use that process to make about half of the world's supply of, of human insulin, which, of course, all diabetics need. So that was a direct application and outcome of the, of the basic findings we made about how yeast makes processes and secretes its own hormone. And we just inserted insulin as in place of the yeast hormone. And like, like magic, I hate to use that word, uh, the yeast cells were able to act as little factories to make human insulin. So I, I wanted to talk about how you got there. Um, you, you, you spoke quickly about what was interesting about biochemistry, but I wanted to talk more in detail about that and also about who influenced um, you as you became a biochemist. Uh, my mother, uh, who unfortunately passed away at age 90 a year ago on April 18th, 2010, swears to me that in my sixth grade folder for parents' night, the first PTA meeting, my folder actually had on it a, a picture that I cut out of, I don't know if it was a collage or what, but that uh, showed a man in a white lab coat with retorts and flasks around him, and that was in the sixth grade. So somehow I, uh, she had an inkling <laughs> that I might turn into a career in science. But actually, in high school, um, I, I was born and raised in Massachusetts, and I went to high school there, and um, my biology teacher in high school, Mrs. Monkern, was sick a lot of the time. So, and really the course in biology at that time was kind of plants and animals. And because she wasn't there a lot, we had substitute teachers and all they knew how to do to keep us amused was to give us, you know, formaldehyde pickled cockroaches or worms or slices of grapefruit to play around with and mess around with and look at under the microscope. So it wasn't very satisfying. So I actually enjoyed my chemistry professor, Mr. Keogh, a chemistry teacher, Mr. Mr. Keogh, and my physics teacher, Mr. Rayner, these guys were really funny, humorous, but, but uh, demanding and really taught chemistry and physics. So I really liked that aspect of science. But you have to remember, I was a child of the 60s. I started college at Harvard in 1963. That was the year the Beatles and the Rolling Stones birth, both showed up on Ed Sullivan and uh, revolution was in the air, etc. <laughs> we were in Vietnam, uh, mired in Vietnam or getting there. 
And so uh, maybe in a sense of rebellion to, to my predilections, I, I thought when I started there I would change directions totally and become a history and lit major, history and literature. And so as an incipient humanities major, I had to take for breadth the science course. And so in the spring semester of my freshman year, I said, well, I kind of really don't know what biology is about because Mrs. Monkern wasn't there and we didn't really learn much. So I decided I'd take uh, a course called Bio 2, uh, which was sort of biology really for non-majors. And the first lecturer in that class was a, a fellow named Kenneth Timon, T-H-I-M-A-N-N. And in those days, universities had mandatory retirement at age 65. So actually, when he reached that age, Timon was recruited by UC Santa Cruz, which was a campus of the UC system just being built at the time to become their first chairman of biology. And there's a building named after him there, Timon Hall. Um, and he, he passed away a few years ago himself. But uh, at the time, he was the first lecturer in this course. And he started talking about uh, Pasteur and spontaneous generation and debunking the ideas of spontaneous generation and all the clever experiments that were used by Spellanzani and others, uh, Pasteur included, to, to show that all life must come from other cellular life. And it wasn't so much the science, it was the cleverness of the actual experiments to prove the point, to debunk what were false ideas that were really fascinating. And, uh, of course, he talked about Walter Reed and the underlying basis of disease and yellow fever and, uh, and all the wonderful experiments that were done. And the second lecturer in the course was James Watson of Watson and Crick, the discoverer of DNA. This, again, was 1963, uh, was spring of 64, and he had gotten the Nobel Prize two years before, something like that. Um, and Watson's, you know, with, with all due respect to Jim... He's a bit of a geek, <laughs> and he doesn't—he doesn't, he doesn't uh, you know, like to make eye contact with the audience all that much, or at least he didn't then. He talked more to the board, and he mumbled a little bit. But what he talked about and how he presented it—he has a razor sharp intellect, and again, he talked about that they were figuring out the genetic code. They still hadn't figured out how the genetic code was specified and whether. What, how all of the amino acids were in, in, a, in a protein were dictated by the sequence of nucleotides in the DNA, and they were still sort of finishing that off. And again, all the clever chemical and physical ways in which particular sets of nucleotides, the so-called triplets of codons, were connected to particular amino acids, and that were uh, the, the idea of transRNA, soluble RNA, had come out of Paul Zamasnik's biochemistry, but also the fertility of Francis Crick's mind. <laughs> he proposed that there had to be some kind of adapter that turned the nucleotide code into an amino acid code. Um, and again, it was, it was uh, not only um, you know, what was said, but how it was said and, and the cleverness of how to attack these problems that really caught me. So I remember... After those two lecturers finished, I remember going home one weekend just to see my sisters and my mom in Quincy, Massachusetts, taking the red line on the subway from, from Harvard Square to get my laundry done and get a square meal. Um, I remember telling my mother, I'm, I'm going to switch my major from history and lit to biology. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. You'll be a doctor. <laughs> 
And I said, no, no, mom, you don't understand. I want to help figure out how cells really work. And so I was a biology major for another year. And then uh, one of my advisors actually was a graduate student who worked with another giant of biology, a fellow named Keith Porter. And when he hit 65, he was recruited to become the chair, first chair of the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at the University of Colorado at Boulder. But uh, Keith at the time had a great postdoc or grad student named Breck Byers, who I ran into much later in life because he was also a wonderful electron microscopist and yeast geneticist. Um, but at the time, uh, he was my advisor. And in talking with Breck and about what he was doing and things like that, it wasn't, still wasn't what I was after. And fortunately, just at that time, a number of faculty from the Department of Chemistry, Conrad Block, Paul Doty, Matt Meselson, and some faculty from biology, uh, Klaus Weber, um, uh, Jim Watson himself, Wally Gilbert, they got together and they founded a program called the, the Committee on Biochemical Sciences. And this, so this wasn't even a legitimate department at the time. So one could major, become a ward of this Committee on Biochemical Sciences, and that's what I was really after, the marriage between chemistry and biology, because in its truest sense, biology is just the chemistry of the molecules that happen to be in living things and not the molecules that are in rocks uh, and that sort of stuff. So <clears throat> it was really that, that major and those people that were formative. And as I said, sitting in those lectures by Timon and Watson, it was like those cartoon characters you see in the Sunday paper where there's a, a bubble over their head and a light bulb where it, it clicks on. That's the way it was for me. And I, at that point, I just knew what my life's path was going to be. So you did that. And later you came to Berkeley. That was in 1974. Four. Yeah. And so you've been here since. And I just wanted to know, what is it about Berkeley that kept you here? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the first time I ever heard, I had, you know, to be honest, not really heard of Berkeley until I was a junior in high school. Again, being raised on the East Coast, especially in the Boston area, with MIT and Harvard and Yale, just, uh, you know, an hour drive or so in New Haven, uh, those were the great institutions. Um, but I first heard of Berkeley from my high school uh, English teacher, Bruce McDonald, when I was a junior. He was one of my favorite teachers, too, maybe part of the reason I wanted to be a history and lit major. And he had spent a summer uh, out here at Berkeley doing reading and writing and literature, some, some kind of program that they had even at that time for high school English teachers, which was fantastic. And he just, he loved it. He had a wonderful time, the intellectual foment. And so that was the first I'd heard of it. And, and then, of course, after that, since I was in science, there were you know, real giants of the field that had done their work here and were still doing their work here. Some of my colleagues, the late, great Dan Koshlin, my beloved colleague, Howard Schachman, who's still with us, um, lots of other people in between whose work I came to appreciate and understand especially really terrific enzymology. Um, Horace Barker, Jesse Rabinowitz, uh, a lot of people. And again, a fortune smiled on me by, you know, this wonderful institution, the University of California at Berkeley, offering me a job. And um, 
it was an eye-opener. Um, having been at Harvard, a private institution, Stanford, another private institution, uh, I saw that this place, supported by the state and the taxpayers, was just as spectacular in terms of its intellectual intensity, its focus on pushing against the barriers of our knowledge. But more importantly, it served a really important public good, and that is that um, no matter what walk of life, financial stratum of society, religion, fresh off the boat, long-standing resident of California, interloper from another state, as long as you were hungry enough and worked hard enough and did well enough in your high school education, this university provided you the entree into the intellectual environment at a bargain basement price. And so this allowed upward mobility of people that at other institutions would not have a chance of getting in the door because they're smaller and they cost a heck of a lot more. And that kind of service to, you know, California is the biggest state in the nation. It's got the largest population. Um, that's a public good and a service um, to society and the economy and everything else that I've, that I've found very satisfying above and beyond being able to do non-parel science here. It's wonderful to be able to say this institution looks out over San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a magnet for attracting some of the best young minds at the level of grad students and postdocs. Um, there's a certain mystique about coming to the California dream, the Golden State, whether it's still true or not is another matter. But it's easy to convince people to come and work, and that, that also you, a laboratory can't survive without the brilliant minds and hands of the constant influx of new people that come in and bring new technologies and new ideas and new energy to the enterprise. And I'm the only barnacle on the bottom of the boat that stays the same <laughs> and ages over time. <laughs> But uh, it, so all of those things, the attractiveness of the place, uh, its, its ethos, its long tradition of, of intellectual excellence, uh, it's just made it a wonderful place to be. And I've had my chances to leave for Howard Hughes funded positions elsewhere. And then in the end, I've just always decided to stay. So uh, that's, that's interesting to me. You just mentioned your laboratory, um, and it's actually the Thorner Lab. Um, you, you mentioned quickly some of your, th the things that make you proudest about your career. Um, what, what can you tell me about your laboratory, when you started it, um, and the people who came to work in it? Oh, boy. That's a lot of ancient history here. But, um, you know, you mentioned um, scientifically what are some of my mm -hmm. proudest moments or achievements or things. Um, but I think everybody who's a professor, everybody who has um, established a lab, and uh, this is the, the end of my 37th year here, so I've, ha I've had a lot of people in my group. Um, I think most faculty would say one of their greatest rewards, aside from the science, is you know, seeing their trainees, whether they're undergraduates who've done an honors project in the lab and go off to medical school or an MD-PhD program and really thrive and become wonderful physicians or go off to grad school and become them good scientists in their own right. 
or graduate students that then go on to a career, illustrious career in science, or postdocs who do the same, or whether they go into biotech industry and do good for humanity that way, or, or become faculty themselves. Uh, that's one of the greatest rewards of running, running a lab, is the continuity, the passing of the torch, the feeling like you've influenced some other, other lives in a very positive way. Uh, that, that's in incredibly satisfying. So here I um, started off very modest means. Uh, my dean was, a, was a, again, a fellow who's passed away, but his name is Fred Carpenter, and he, he actually was an insulin biochemist himself. And um, when I started, my first appointment was in a department called Bacteriology and Immunology. And um, uh, I respected uh, 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 tremendously several of the faculty in my department, especially the late Marion Koshland, and in particular Hiroshi Nakaido, because Hiroshi had been a faculty member and a scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital who I had run into as a first-year graduate student, and I knew about his work and, and how keen an intellect he had in, in his work. And he had, he had accepted a position here, moved from Boston all the way out here, um, and since I respected him and his work enormously, I, I felt privileged to be in that same department. But because I didn't work on a bacterium or the immune system, uh, I think uh, the chair turned over and it became a fellow named Leon Wafsi, who was an immunologist. And in deference to me, I, have to, I was surprised I was still just a wet-behind-the-ears assistant professor. He fomented a change of the name of the department to microbiology and immunology so it would encompass me and my work even because I wasn't working on a bacterium. Yeast was a microbe, but it wasn't a bacterium. It's a eukaryotic, so-called eukaryotic microbe. Um, but it was very modest. Uh, Fred came by the lab and said, well, look, these bench tops need to be replaced, and you know the room's kind of drab. We should repaint it. And that was my total setup package, was to spiff up the, the one windowless 480-square-foot room that I called my lab for the first five years I was here. Um, so I got no help whatsoever buying any equipment. And these days, you know, it takes about $400,000, $500,000 setup package to attract a high-caliber assistant professor to our faculty um, just that's sort of the going rate. Um, and as I say, it was uh, crowded in there, one windowless 480-square-foot room. Uh, but it guess just goes to show it's the people in the room that matter, not the size of the room or how many windows it has or what a, what a beautiful building it's in. My first three students uh, appeared suddenly uh, at desks in my lab when I finally moved from Stanford to Berkeley, they were sitting there, and I said, who are you? And they said, we're your graduate students. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, uh, there isn't any space in any other faculty lab, and you're the newest faculty member, so we're working with you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that's so, how I started off. <laughs> come a long way. Um, we're going to talk about an entirely different topic now, a topic that concerns you um, enormously. Um, specifically the teaching of science in public schools here in America today. And as we all know, the teaching of science is, and the understanding of science is being hindered um, by the efforts of religious and political groups who intend to introduce so-called alternative explanations um, to the teaching of evolution, the theory of evolution. 
So we're talking about creationism and intelligent design, um, which are there to supposedly encourage critical thinking. And um, obviously, this is a great concern to you. I, I wanted to ask you what you saw as the most pernicious consequence here. Oh, um, I think uh, our progress as a society is best served if we confront reality and try and use ration and reason to deal with the problems that confront us. And so by accepting on faith, the faith by itself is not a bad thing, but accepting on faith uh, purely without factoring in and weighing the evidence of your own eyes or the accumulated facts of years of study, um, that's a very dangerous thing. It's like ostriches burying your head in the sand. You, you have to actually look at the evidence for what you want to say. And so if the Bible says that the earth is only 6,000 years old, or maybe it's 6,200 years old at this point, but um, if that's what the Bible says, but we have geological evidence that it's millennia, I mean, millions of years, billions, the earth is 2.2 or something like that, billion years old, based on all sorts of physical methods for dating. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a little hard to, to accept hook, line, and sinker just because it's written down someplace. There are lots of things that are written down that have turned out to be wrong. And if you don't look dispassionately at, at the evidence for things and just uh, accept what somebody else tells you, that's very dangerous. And I, uh, you know, we were talking before the interview turned on about a recent incident that's happened here in the history of our country, but especially California, and it involves a graduate of this institution, but a minister who said the end of the world was going to happen on, on May 21st, 2011. And lots of people... Uh, of faith and well-meaning humans uh, sold all their belongings, uh, euthanized all their pets, uh, uh, you know, and expected to be carried to heaven just on this fellow's say-so. Well, that's, that's a suspension of disbelief, a lack of critical thinking that's very, very dangerous. It's like Jim Jones and Jonestown. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's just very scary. And that's the most pernicious thing that I think it misleads a lot of people uh, and, and takes them down to a down a path that's that's very dangerous and hurtful to them um, all in the name of you know faith which mm -hmm. which is a misuse uh, of, of that the whole concept in my in my opinion so I just I just wanted to give a bit of context for listeners who may not live in the United States um, this is May 2011. And uh, so far this year, there, there were nine anti-evolution bills introduced in seven different states. The good news is that six of these bills are dead in Missouri, Florida, Kentucky, New Mexico, and Oklahoma. But they are still being discussed in Texas and Tennessee. Um, in Louisiana, there's an anti-evolution law that was enacted in 2008, although there's a bill to repeal it that is now being examined in the state Senate. Um, but it's not over because there's a board of education in Texas um, that has to review new science textbooks that are laced with creationist arguments, according to the National Center for Science Education. And of course, there's a creationism museum thriving in Kentucky, the same state that has given uh, the go-ahead and promised tax incentives for Noah's Ark theme park project. So it's pretty clear that 
science seems to be losing ground in those specific areas. What do you think is happening? What is causing this? Well, um, I think people are afraid to confront difficult and complex subjects that require difficult and complex solutions and decisions. It's so much easier to accept a simplistic, you know, one-size-fits-all answer to things, um, even if, it, as we said, if even if it flies in the face of what you know to be true. Um, the other aspect of that, I must say, maybe just, you know, call me political or something, but um, I think it's too easy for politicians that, that's what they want. They want voters that are emotional, that don't think hard, that aren't critical, that they can sway with an argument that appeals to their emotions and basest feelings rather than to their intellect and asking them to participate in, in hard decisions. So uh, it's just like lawyers on a jury. They, they, they don't want the them to look too hard at the facts. They want to be able to sway them on the whether they're on the defense or the prosecution. Um, and I think we really do have to look at the evidence, the facts, the reality of the situation, and only then can we confront things in a, in a productive way. And so I, I think that's the basis why people feel like, oh, uh, I don't want to have to deal with whether there's evidence for I'm just happy to believe that God reached out and created everything in, in six days. But it's, it's interesting because um, when you started your career in the 60s and the 70s, there seemed to be at the time a lot of enthusiasm for science. There, you, know, you were sending a man on the moon. There was competition between the USSR at the time and, and the U.S. to kind of get ahead, scientifically speaking. Um, in 1968, I think the Supreme Court ruled that banning the teaching of evolution in public schools was unconstitutional. So the idea of creationism and intelligent design, that isn't necessarily new, but it seems to have gained a lot of momentum in recent years. And I was wondering when you started um, noticing a shift and, and, and how it began and, and who started it and, and why it got there. Yeah, um, well, for me, uh, paying attention to this in a serious way is kind of a, a, a story of two bushes. Uh, after World War II, there was a, a fellow named Vannevar Bush who put together a report uh, about how the U.S., if it was going to maintain uh, its economic viability and its place in the world, was going to have to invest more in scientific research and education. Um, but then, as we all know, we had uh, President George W. Bush who, who uh, you know, all evidence to the contrary, uh, made the statement in 2004 or five that he thought that um, intelligent design should be taught in the biology classroom to provide the alternative explanation. And that's because, you know, he was a, a born-again man of faith, uh, and he thought this was, uh, you know, something that he was, you know, he was being fair, even-handed that, you know. And, um, but what he what what he missed, and what people who unfortunately haven't been exposed to a sufficient amount of science miss, 
is that you can only do science on things that you can actually measure, things that you can observe, things that you can follow and monitor. So this means it's restricted to what's in the physical world around us that we can actually taste, sense, smell, count, and whether or not there is a deity that is responsible for creating everything, a so-called intelligent designer, if you don't want to use deity, um, uh, you know, it just cannot be, it's not part of science. So it was just sort of setting up a false uh, situation to, to want to inveigle that into the classroom where precepts of, of the scientific method and science were being taught. So that was sort of the eye-opener for me. Here's the president of the United States bringing up a very unscientific way of looking at the world. And so this, again, it's a dangerous thing to do. So he said that in 2005, but that same year in, in, in Pennsylvania, there was a federal court that ruled that uh, teaching intelligent design and creationism in public schools was unconstitutional because it violated the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, um, which states that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we're talking about the separation of church and state here. That's in the law. It's been ruled. And yet states and Christian pressure groups aren't stopping. So what do you think um, scientists could do to counter that? You know, uh, you know just uh, a word or two about that case. I mean, that, that Dover case uh, is really a landmark. And uh, in fact, the judge who was responsible for ruling, his name is uh, John Jones, what could be a more American name, <laughs> Uh, he made a very courageous, he was a Bush, a George W. Bush appointee, and uh, he made a very courageous decision because he got schooled during the course of that trial himself. He admitted that in his decision, that uh, being presiding over that case was like being back in the classroom in biology class, learning about all of, uh, all of the background. But <clears throat> in the end, what carried the day in that case had nothing to do with the judge really understanding that the evidence for evolution is overwhelming. It was quite the controversy, uh, quite the contrary, sorry. Um, he was really mainly ruling on the fact of was intelligent design just creationism, i.e. religion, in a different guise. And the smoking gun there was documentation found by the National Center for Science Education, Eugenie Scott and her crew, where they were able to find the first drafts of the book that intelligent design wanted to use in the classroom of penguins and pandas or pandas and penguins or something like that, where in the first drafts of the book, there were certain sentences that said, blah, 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 the creator did this, blah, 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 or creation did that. And in the, the actual published version, all that was done was to change creator into a designer or intelligent designer or creation. into. So it was just as if somebody had done a spell check or, or a replace with their word processor. And so it was a no-brainer. Well, clearly, intelligent design and intelligent designer was just a substitution for creator. And so that's what the judge really ruled on is that it was crystal clear from that smoking gun evidence that that's all that was being done. And it wasn't critical thinking in there. You know, he didn't really say there's no evidence for, you know, intelligent design or anything like that. It was really that they were trying to dress up 
creationism in new clothes. So it, it was less than the kind of forceful uh, decision that, that it might have been. But nonetheless, it was still, still I agree with you, it sent a powerful message. And it's, it's um, I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it about evolution in particular? I mean, the telephone and the television don't appear in the Bible. And, you know, there, nobody's seen an electron, and yet nobody is upset about the so-called theory of the electromagnetism and all the things that run our iPad and our iPod, and I'll give equal time to or your Android phone. Uh, so it's something about the fact that it's living things, that it's people, that it's, you know, we are not perhaps made in God's image as the Bible sort of contends that gets people on edge, that people that are, you know, that uh, are people of faith and, um, and again, that's, that it's sort of scary. It shouldn't be separate. Why, why should we think about the physical aspect of living things on our planet different than we do than, than the, the physics of tornadoes or telephones? So um, I, I think that it, it gets people where they live to think about themselves as, as less than special. It seems to be a problem of, of communication. Um, you specifically were, were saying that the, the term theory is causing a lot of confusion. Um, it's, it's an argument that obviously they hang on to and they brandish um, because, you know, it's probably the easiest way to try and battle it um, with scientists. Uh, but scientists understand the word theory in a very different way. I mean, there's theory and there's hypothesis. Um, so... Would you would you give us a definition of the word yeah, theory? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. That is part of the problem. There, there are two things that I think are, are an issue. One is that um, all you need is one person who disagrees. And then you can say there's a controversy. They use it as a lever. They say, well, there's still a controversy because Joe Blow over here at Institution X doesn't believe it. The other thing is, as you point out, the, the, the misconception about the use of the word theory, because in common parlance, the average person, the man on the street, uh, the, that word has a, has a loaded meaning. It's almost a pejorative term. You know, uh, Who was responsible for the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Oh, it was a conspiracy of you know, communist sympathizers. No, no, it was right-wing... Uh, Republicans or something, you know, oh, that's just your theory. So that's how we use it, you know. Uh, you know, uh, why do you think the pitchers on this team, you know, are running hot and cold? Well, my theory is it's used in that term by the common, you know, in common conversation in that way that gives it sort of a lack of credibility. It's just one option among many. And that's not the definition of what we mean in science of a theory. In science, a theory is something that's been put to the test so long and so hard, we accept it as the underlying principle. It's axiomatic for the field. And why do we leave, why do we then why don't we call it the law of gravity like we do, or the law of thermodynamics as we do? Why don't we call it the law of evolution? I think we should at this point. Right. I think the evidence over is sufficiently overwhelming. But in science, we remain always skeptical. 
And that's the value of science. We remain always critical, always skeptical, and we call these things in science, the theory of the electron, electromagnetism, thermodynamics, the theories, because we hold out the possibility that sometime in the future we may be a little bit wrong about this. Some new method, some new insight, some brilliant mind, some next Albert Einstein might show us, like with Newton's laws of motion and force, that there were a somewhat different way of looking at it, and you had to reconcile what happens at the macroscopic level with the cosmic level and the microscopic level, and there's there's always new insight. So we 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 are humble enough in science to call it a theory because at some point there may be a new wrinkle that we didn't anticipate, but that doesn't mean that the weight or value of what's found in that theory is shaky at all. Calling it the theory of evolution because of the common use of theory, gives it that feeling, oh, there's a controversy on the one hand, and oh, it's just a theory of evolution, so it can't be firmly established. Nothing could be further from the truth. The theory of evolution is as firmly established as anything else that we understand about the natural world. And part of that is, uh, when I teach my freshman seminar about this, I point out to the students that the our, our ability to interrogate the world around us is dependent on the tools that we have available. So sure, back when Darwin was just looking at the shape of bird's beaks or geologists were fishing out fossils and, uh, you know, the earth is a big place, maybe the right geological strata hasn't been exposed, maybe we didn't look in the right rocks. So of course the fossil record's punctuated and incomplete. But at this point, we have machines that can sequence the genomes of every living thing on the planet. And at this point, there are hundreds of organisms that have had their complete DNA sequenced. And it's crystal clear that all of us share a common lineage of the genes that we all share. So embedded at the level of our genes is the continuous thread of our development that proves the principles of evolution in the tree of life and, uh, and we, in, in, as I said, in my opinion, if we're going to call it the law of thermodynamics or the law of electromagnetism, we should call it the law of evolution at this point, and maybe that would eliminate part of the controversy. So that, that's interesting to me. I, I want to talk quickly about um, science communication. Um, there are two types of people, it seems at least, you know, scientists who are, being, who are talking about it. You have people like Richard Dawkins who are taking very strong, almost harsh stances um, against creationists, etc. And then you have the ones who say that it's actually being that antagonistic is counterproductive, that it limits dialogue and it helps um, entrench beliefs. So I wanted to know where you stand on this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes. I mean, uh, I love Dawkins' books. They're, they're wonderfully well thought out, well, wonderfully argued. Uh, another person in the sort of the same mindset is Sam Harris, uh, who's a neuroscientist. Um, and, um, you know, uh, to be frank, I guess they're pushing the atheist agenda. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, and I have to say, you know, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say I kind of, I'm kind of more in their camp than anybody else's. Um, I'm not even sure these days whether I hold out any agnosticism, whether or not I'm, you know, uh, but if I'm, a, if I'm a true scientist, I have to be an agnostic. All I can say is that I don't see any evidence for a higher power, but I can't say that there isn't one. Uh, 
And um, I think there are a lot of scientists that are in that camp, that our daily lives, we are perfectly content to see influence not by the stars or the planets or anything else that we can't fathom, but 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 uh, by the physical reality of the world around us. But um, there are people, uh, Francis Collins is a good example. He's the current head of the, the NIH. He, he is a scientist, scientist. He's, he's done wonderful research. Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, the head of the NIH. He, he, he's directing the scientific future of the, of the medical and biomedical enterprise in this nation. But he himself is, is a believer, and, and for him, it's the mystery of how it all started. Um, you know, he, he believes that the, the biology is governed by evolution and all the reactions and pathways we've all figured out over centuries of doing research. But, you know, he's overawed by the thought of, well, how did this all came, come to be? And, you know, I, I'm just not satisfied that it was an accident. I, I cannot accept that it was just an accident. If that's what it takes to give him solace, more power to him. I mean, I, I think that's fine. So I think there are scientists that fall along that entire spectrum. You know, the Dawkins and Sam Harris just saying, how can you idiots believe in <laughs> some higher power when there's no evidence? And look how cruelly humanity's treated humanity. And if there were a God, wouldn't he, you know, want to stop genocide in Rwanda or you know, the tsunami that wiped out people in Indonesia or whatever. He's just trying to teach us a lesson, pretty harsh God, it's, you know, whatever. Um, to, to, you know, people like Collins that are, that are people of faith and try and reconcile the two. And th there are, you know, things like the Templeton Foundation that exists to try and bring together these, you know, what C.P. Snow may be called the, the two cultures in some way, although he wasn't talking about religion in particular. Uh, but the Templeton Foundation has a prize that they give out for you know people who try and bridge this gap between faith or religion and, and science and its practice. Professor Thorner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquad Paz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>